This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. We all know the media narrative. Some of us believe it, some of us don't. White evangelicals are standing in the way of vaccination progress. They don't want to get vaccinated. They're resisting vaccination. That's the narrative. Is it true? Turns out if you look at the numbers, it isn't true. And then there's a story in The Atlantic about progressives adopting COVID restrictions over and above CDC guidelines. So who's following the science? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So, speaking of that Atlantic story, for many on the left, it appears to have become a matter of faith that COVID vaccines don't work and that strong lockdown measures need to continue indefinitely. Well, they wouldn't say that. They wouldn't say that we believe it doesn't work. But they they are so wedded to caution that you, you can't help but start asking, why is this allegiance to the most extreme forms of lockdown? Why has this become like a religion? And I, I think Emma Green, the religion correspondent for The Atlantic, wrote a piece that really doesn't get into religious questions about that, but she over and over returns to the fact that this has become a part of people's identity. And part of it is their hatred of the people that they believe are attacking science from the cultural and religious right. So you have highly educated secular people who are now attacking the science from the left. And this just seems like so an echo of so many of the divisions in our culture uh, that, that makes it so hard for us to make any progress on something like COVID and the vaccines in particular. And from all indication, I mean, obviously, anytime you do such a massive medical effort, you're going to have a few reactions out there and you're going to have questions. But you know, the doctors that I talk to, they can't believe how well the, the vaccine process is going in terms of the reactions. They wish more people would do the vaccines, and especially this trend now of people getting the first shot of the Pfizer and Moderna, but then not going back for the second shot because they think they're okay. But isn't this so typical of all the things we discuss in these podcasts, which is how do you have a sane discussion of this issue through the lens of a mainstream press that seems so determined, with the exception of something like this Atlantic piece, to look at this through the familiar stereotypes and explanations of the Trump era. To some degree, if we're still fighting about Trump, which is bizarre, I mean, Trump was proud, probably overly proud, of his administration leading the effort to get the vaccines. He took the vaccine early without telling anybody when he probably should have done it live on TV to encourage people. I mean, there's so many familiar cliches 
in this situation right now that I, I just I can't get over them. It's interesting, and I found uh, Emma Green's piece there in The Atlantic particularly interesting when she kind of delved into the voices of the eternal lockdown cult, or what, what do you yeah. call it? Safetyism is another term for it. Some of them openly admitting that this really w- was a, a political statement for them. Yeah. That, that yeah, the lockdown has become political. Yeah, there's a great quote in there that listeners may want to hear. It says, for many progressives, extreme vigilance was in part opposing Donald Trump. Some of this reaction was born of deeply felt frustration with how he handled the pandemic. It could also be knee-jerk. If he said, keep schools open, then, well, we're going to do everything in our power to keep schools closed. Monica Gandhi, a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco, told me. It's a statement of identity that you're going to oppose your the straw men that you've created. And, one of, and there is no straw man more powerful than the white evangelical who has to be the, the font of all evil in this era, which is why it's so fascinating now for Ryan Berg, the political scientist that I quote so often, who contributes to get religion from time to time. Check this out from an article that he recently published. When the sample is broken down into three of the largest religious groups, white evangelicals, white Catholics, and the religiously unaffiliated, some disparities begin to emerge. It's noteworthy that white Christians were significantly more likely to get the vaccine than the general public between January and April. In the latest wave of the survey, nearly 60% of white Catholics had been vaccinated, and just about half of white evangelicals said the same. It was the religious nuns that were lagging behind, the religiously unaffiliated, with only 31% indicating they had received one dose. That brings me to a fascinating passage in a Washington Post story about Hispanic evangelicals being the problem with all of this. And listen, this is supposed to be the smoking gun statistical paragraph. Skepticism appears to be relatively high among evangelicals in general. More than three in 10 self-identified evangelical or born-again Christians say they will probably or definitely not get the vaccine compared to just over two in 10 Americans who are not evangelical. I don't know about you. I'm stunned that it's only three in 10 evangelicals who say they probably, I mean, if, if you get down to the definitely not, that means the definitely not is under three in 10. Couldn't you say that it's amazing that 70% of white evangelicals and white Catholics intend to get vaccinated? I mean, isn't that a great headline? But apparently not. Okay, so can you explain the allure of this narrative for the average media outlet? Because it it has been repeated so many times. And as you said, Ryan Burge's numbers belie all of it. But what's the allure of this? They've got to have someone to blame for Trump. And that has from day one been the white evangelicals with the, you know, the 81 percent number, which at some point I thought they were going to start tattooing it on people's foreheads. But when the reality was infinitely more complex than that, and you and I have discussed that so often, we could almost wrap it at this point. But the simple fact of the matter is evangelicals were divided on the Trump presidency. They were 
divided between the people who reluctantly voted for him and the people who enthusiastically voted for him all through the primaries and probably got him the nomination. That's the old deal. But even in 2016, the story of the election was that it wasn't white evangelicals who elected Trump. It was Catholics that in the crucial swing states that voted for him and won it. And as you've heard me say before, you also have the fascinating fact that Trump would have never been president without the votes of Latino evangelicals and charismatics in the state of Florida. That was the story of 216, which nobody covered. Some people got around to covering it a little bit in 2020, and we finally heard about the Latino evangelicals, which has now earned them their own story, blaming them for the COVID situation in the Washington Post. The reality on the vaccines seems to be that, yes, there are Christians, especially in rural America, fiercely independent, often rural, you know, etc. There are people who oppose the vaccines. Surprise, surprise. As opposed to the anti-vax cults of San Francisco and New York and whatever else. That is a story. It's a valid story. But it's not the story of the hesitancy of people getting vaccines. I've seen it over and over that what most people attribute as evangelicals aren't getting the vaccines. When you really look at it, it's white Republican men who are less likely than others to get the vaccines. White Republican men, a lot of whom are evangelicals, but a lot of whom are mainline Protestants, and a lot of whom are Catholics. Here's what it reminds me of, Todd. Do you, do you remember back when the the COVID wars began to hit the regulations and the rules? And I wrote a couple of posts, and we did a podcast, about the fact that If you read the newspaper, there were millions of evangelicals. It turned out there were very few. Millions of evangelicals who were determined to say, we're going to worship no matter what. God will protect us. We're going to go in there shoulder to shoulder and dance in the aisles. When that was actually a story among charismatic and Pentecostals, both white and black, for the most part, and most of them are part of small, independent movements. They were there, but they were not the story. Meanwhile, on the other side, you had people so mad at religious people, the highly secularized folks in many urban governments who were determined to make it hard to worship, period. And they started coming out with rules, infamously, where it was much harder to go to a church even one that's following safety regulations, than it was to go to a liquor store or to a to a gambling parlor or whatever. And you had this, we're going to punish the religious people. Religion is more dangerous than essential activities. Well, the story was that in the middle, millions and millions of religious believers in a host of different traditions wanted to worship, but they were willing to work with the CDC guidelines. The New York Times story is right here in my country. They set that story in northern, northeast Tennessee. And that's where I lived and taught at Milligan College for six years. I I know that part of the state really well. I'm now about an hour south 
of that part of the state. But I know East Tennessee really well, and I am not surprised at all. There are lots of people who are skeptical about the vaccines and hesitant. But when you dug into the story, you found that the mainstream religious people knew there were disputes, knew there were pressures, but they were quietly supporting the vaccines. And then once again, the folks who were very strongly opposed are mostly charismatic or Pentecostal, and they're in tiny little churches. They're not the mainstream of evangelicalism. My own church, we've been meeting under the CDC guidelines. We've been spaced out. We've only had four people in a choir at stands facing away from the congregation. We've done everything we can to follow our bishop, our Orthodox bishop, and do safe worship. Well, the other night was Pascha, our Easter, last Sunday night. And we did something that I think this would have been wonderful if you wanted to put it on the front page of the New York Times, because this, this was a part of the story of our region. We rented a huge tent the kind that you would do like tent revivals in. And we set this tent up on the empty lot that we own next to our little tiny sanctuary that we can't all get in. And we did Pascha outdoors. I mean, midnight. We did, all, did most of Holy Week outdoors. But we ended up with several hundred people, at least 200 people, 50 or 60 kids in sleeping bags, sleeping through a lot of the service because it's from midnight to 3 a.m., was when we did the service, but we did everything we could to meet the safety guidelines. And for me, without a doubt, the most emotional moment of Pascha for me this year was when one of my best friends who's at fourth stage fight with cancer and has been under the strictest lockdown possible showed up for Pascha. His doctors said he could come because we were meeting outdoors and he left his mask on, and the people who were singing on both sides of him left their masks on. We did everything we could to get him his own space. But he got to come to Pascha because we believed the science and followed the guidelines and did everything we could to work within them and worship anyway. So why isn't that a news story? Why is it just the people on both extremes of this thing that keep getting all the ink? So, Terry, do you think the media will ever get over its Donald Trump hangover? No. There's no sign they will. And and we see this played out in so many ways in stories related to COVID. But I think our, our listeners need to think about the visuals of something and, and how a lot of Americans, especially Americans who are even have the slightest inclination to be skeptical, the other night, uh, the president spoke to a socially distanced group of people in Congress. They were well-spaced apart, and every single person in that room had been vaccinated. And I would assume most even continued to be tested, just in case. And they're all sitting there in masks. Another one of my favorite visuals linked to what you and I are talking about was Biden on a Zoom call with world leaders. And they're all separated by the, by the Internet, quite literally, all over the world. And none of the other world leaders, I don't believe, I don't think there was a single one, is wearing a mask. 
because it's them, a microphone, and a camera, and there's nobody else anywhere near them. And there's Biden alone with a microphone and a camera in a mask. Why is he in a mask? The message a lot of Americans would say, the vaccines don't work. They must not work. Why is he wearing a mask? The, these policies continue to go round and round and round this political merry-go-round that's so symbolic and it's so full of stereotypes and so full of ill will. I mean, it would not bother me at all. And I'm someone who still wears a mask when I'm out in crowded places, even though I've been vaccinated. But when I go to the grocery store, I still put on a mask for the simple fact that I'm in a crowd and there is a slim chance of getting the disease. And I am very much an at-risk elderly white male with asthma. I mean, so I'm going to be careful and I'm going to respect others. And like I said the other night when my friend showed up, you know, in the midst of his cancer fight, I think it's proper to put a mask on under those circumstances. And if Joe Biden walking out to the helicopter with his wife wants to wave to the crowd with no mask and then walk over to the press line back up like five feet from them or four feet from them, even though he's outdoor. And if he wants to put a mask on in that situation, I don't think many people would laugh at that. But a man sitting with a microphone and a camera alone in a room wearing a mask, talking to world leaders around the planet through the Internet, that's a strange visual. There's one other passage in the um, Emma Green article that I think captures the flavor of this that I think our listeners would appreciate. And it's trying to describe this group of people on the left for whom extreme measures to control the, the virus have become a, a near religion, an article of faith with them. Listen to this. Scientists, academics, and writers who have argued that some very low-risk activities are worth doing as vaccination rates rise, even if the risk of exposure is not zero, have faced intense backlash. After Emily Oster, an economist at Brown University, argued in The Atlantic in March that families should plan to take their kids on trips and see friends and relatives this summer, a reader sent an email to her supervisors at the university suggesting that Oster be promoted to a leadership role in the, quote, field of genocide encouragement, unquote. Well, I know lots of people who've been vaccinated now that intend to have small, careful family reunions, but they're going to go see their families. When everybody there is tested negative or has been vaccinated, they're going to do small activities and be careful and safe, but get back, start the process of getting back together. The issue here is at what point do our political divisions allow us to even have sane discussions of what the scientists are now telling us, you know, about this in-between, evolving end of the great dark night. It's just such a fascinating thing, and it's so political. But because it's political, religion then gets pulled into it as well, because so many of our political divisions are actually cultural divisions, and a lot of them are linked to religious practice versus secularism. You had mentioned Eastern Tennessee and perhaps the New York Times piece from last yeah. week about 
faith, freedom, and fear, rural America's COVID vaccine skeptics. Yeah. Got about two minutes here. What are your thoughts on that story? By the way, the pictures for this story were unbelievable, beautiful pictures of rural America. But what yeah, did you make that, of this? Didn't that great shot of the mountains, didn't that make you want to come down and pay me a visit? Yes, actually it um, did. But at least get in the neighborhood. So what did you make of this rather long piece in the New York Times? Well, I was glad that they ended up stressing rural more than they stressed religion. What they couldn't get themselves to summarize was the fact that the mainstream religious voices in Greenville and Johnson City and Elizabeth and whatever, the mainstream voices were all basically pro-vaccine. They may not be courageously pro-vaccine because they know that their rural population is divided. But they ended up over and over and over in these small, independent, you know, religious congregations where people were highly skeptical, and many of them were voicing, you know, the same cliches. You know, it's a way they're going to trace us. It's going to be, you know, Bill Gates. It's, it's a part of Bill Gates' phobia and all this other stuff. And yes, this is a divisive issue in some congregations, but it's like they couldn't get themselves to admit that there were just as many or more religious people fighting to promote or defend the vaccines as there are strident voices that oppose it. They couldn't get themselves to see the three worship groups, never worship, we're going to worship no matter what, and in the middle, yes, we're going to worship carefully. We're going to listen. We're going to work with our religious leaders. We're going to work with our local government leaders. If they'll work with us, we're going to do our best I can. But dang it, we are going to worship safely. And now these are the people that are saying, yeah, let's do the vaccines. Let's be careful and let's push ourselves as far back to normal as we safely can do so. It's the stories in the middle. And once again, that's just not making it into the headlines. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. And he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here again. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.